Hello, welcome to another episode of Rewired Podcast. I'm Kelly. Uh, we have Bailey here as well. She'll be joining this conversation shortly. And special episode today, we're very excited to have another guest joining us. This is Craig Schlesinger, uh, who we met through the Wire fandom on Twitter. And it's a great community to be a part of. Uh, we're meeting so many amazing people and getting to have some amazing conversations on social media. So, Craig, um, thank you for joining us. Really happy that you're able to be here and uh, talk to us about The Wire. That's our favorite thing to do. Um, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do and uh, how people can get to know you online. Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, well, talking about The Wire is also one of my favorite pastimes. Um, I'm uh, on Twitter as Psychedelic Craig. So instead of two C's, there's just one C, Psychedelic and Craig, which is one C instead of two. And I'm the Chief Financial Officer for PsychCorp. Our main platform is PsychedelicSpotlight.com. Great. Well, thank you for being here. Um, tell us a little how you got sort of into the wire. When did you first watch it and, and what got you hooked on the show? Because we know you're a big fan, of course. Huge fan. And this is an interesting journey because <clears throat> it goes into something, <clears throat> excuse me, something that I want to touch on right off the bat, which is the never ending nexus of the Sopranos and the wire. I was an original Sopranos watcher. Um, huge mob movie aficionado, mob, you know, true crime book aficionado. So it was a natural uh, fit for me. And, you know, it was the, the show that changed television. Um, and then, of course, you know, three years later, uh, The Wire came along and changed television again. I often say that I don't care what your number one and number two are. As long as those are your number one and number two, we're going to be okay. Of course, you know, for me, I think it's really impressive that The Wire can have cops as the protagonists and you know not be about organized crime and still be my favorite thing of all time so it says a lot it's not a knock on the sopranos by any stretch it's just a it says a lot about the wire and i think that those two hbo shows really just forever changed television premium television and just as i was catching up on the melvin jackson jr episode it's it's a constant you you see between both shows is that they've embraced the legacy of the shows and that they are forever their characters, their famous quotes. You know, you see Jamie Hector on Twitter. He still has my name is my name in his, uh, in his profile. Dominic Lombardozzi still has something about that. The, when at the end of the game, the King and the pawn go back into the same box, you know? So it's, I, I love seeing that kind of, you know, pride yeah. in the work because they recognize how special it is. And, you know, he just mentioned Wood Harris. Wood Harris was in Above the Rim, uh, Melvin Jackson Jr., that is, Bernard. He mentioned uh, meeting Wood Harris. Wood Harris was in Above the Rim. Michael Rispoli was in Above the Rim. Michael Rispoli plays the original boss in The Sopranos, Jackie April, uh, in season one. So the Nexus, you know, they've got Horseface from season two plays Tony's uh, coach in The Test Dream. Um, there's all the... the uh, the homeless killer who's not the homeless killer, the one that says, hey, you've got a card. He's in The Sopranos. He's in The Mental Ward with Uncle June. Um, there's all kinds of Soprano connections. Michael Kenneth Williams has a almost like a pre-Omar cameo. And even Newark native uh, J.D. Williams, who plays Bodie, has a kind of a pre-Bodie cameo in Season 1, Episode 2 of The Sopranos. 
Um, so there's there's a there's this nexus there too. I think that's really special as well. And uh, catching up on the Melvin Jackson Jr. episode uh, really kind of brought that back up. And I just also have to say that the the chemistry between him and Squeak, the actress that played Squeak, one of my favorite character development moments is Squeak walking out the front door with the the bag of cheese puffs or chips and just having like one or two left and then throwing it down on the on the floor in the street was just you know that was side splittingly funny to me. And just a, just a microcosm of how the wire can take side yeah. characters and really just dig deep into their character with something as simple as that. And I kind of that, that really gets my art, my artistic, you know, um, it, 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 it just really pops up on my artistic on my artistic radar, I guess, so to speak. <laughs> so I just wanted to lead with that and say, you know, just a general appreciation for the show, for everyone involved with the show from the side characters to the writers and to the fandom especially it's it's been such a treat to get involved with the fandom and it's great to be here on the podcast so thanks again for having me we're happy to have you um and so this is kind of a standard question we like to ask all of our guests favorite season favorite character so all very very tough and loaded questions for sure uh, the, the seasons, it's it's difficult. I know a lot of people like to pick and choose. I feel like The Wires is a show that builds on itself, so they're all your favorite season. You know, you kind of, and then you see the next one, you're like, oh, and then the next. So it, it's hard to pick. I think I'm going to go with, and I know this might be blasphemy to some people, but season five, because Omar on the Rampage is one of, it's some of the best Omar ever. Money Little Late Today, uh, Make Sure Boss Man, you know who it is, Drop Savino, all that's I mean, it's just Omar on the Warpath, the best. The best Omar stuff. Um, best character, I have so many to choose from that, that aren't the usual suspects, but I think I have to go with Clay Davis. Uh, just kind of the, quintess, the quintessential politician. You know, black or white, doesn't matter. It's just an extortionist. You know, there's a, that baseline of corruption and, and cynicality that I, that I bring with me towards, you know, politics and politicians and... Clay Davis, I think, you know, Isaiah Whitlock is just amazing. I keep my Clay Davis bobblehead with me all the time. Um, it's, it's such an iconic character. Um, and if I had to choose a runner-up, I would say Clarence Royce. I really love the portrayal of the politicians. None of us want to get a real job and that kind of thing. And... Really? Oh, yeah. I love it. It's the, interesting the portrayal... to hear someone pick, yeah. to pick Clarence yeah, kind he's of great. an unusual oh, he's, choice he's there with uh, Royce. One of the one of the, the favorite things about politicians and the way that, um, and I'm blanking on the actor who plays Royce, but th- just his performance is they're cornering Irv into keeping the murder rate low. And then later on when they don't have it and the Amsterdam mess is going on, they look back and, and he says it in that iconic, you know, voices. Because I had that as a promise, and and in the face on Burrell, you know, at the time, it's like I can't, you know, I didn't promise you that, but it's just this is how, in the world of politics, it's just they think something into existence, therefore it is, and I think that you know David Simon, David Simon's insights from you know his years covering it to the actors being able to you know really make that come alive and deliver it in a very authentic way is just it's something that really separate gives that show that separation from others. Well, and you were saying before we started recording here that Sergei is a character that you have a lot of, um, I guess, attention to and a lot of uh, sort of parallels between yourself and Sergei. 
So tell us a little yep. bit about that. Yeah, so definitely feel a lot of uh, relatability to my man Sergey. Um, he is uh, he is from Kiev, or as he refers to in the show. I, I've seen a lot of people say uh, in quotes that Kiev is Ukraine, but what he's actually saying is Kievish Ukraine. Um, Kievish is like uh, saying the Tsar and then the Tsarevich. That was the heir to the Tsar. So it's like he's saying he's of Kiev, Ukraine. Um, so that's a kind of a Slavic ism there. And uh, my mother's side of the family, uh, her my her grandparents, my great grandparents, came to New York from Kiev in 1905 back when the last czar was on a kind of a mass murder rampage not on like darth putin is now just with uh fortunately not as you know modern of weaponry um so you know thoughts are definitely with all of my um my brethren you know back in in ukraine and everyone who's fled and everyone who's still there and everyone who's lost loved ones and um it's a it's a really sad situation that you know we hope gets resolved soon um, with peace and self-determination for the Ukrainian people. It's, it's been a very it's been a very, very long odyssey of being on the receiving end of Russian aggression. Yeah, um, definitely a lot a lot to think about there and to uh, once again reflect on how the wire continues to speak to our current world. And I want to hear about the slang because you were you were speaking to me briefly about um, the slang that probably a lot of people don't necessarily know about. One of my favorites is, of course, everyone knows when they show up and Zig uh, accuses of being a Russian. He says, "No, Ukraine, Kiev is Ukraine. It's the same difference." No, you're wrong. <laughs> and uh, you know, I get a good kick out of that. The slang appears in two distinct moments that I can remember. And I think a lot of people have mistook the first one, understandably so, for him saying tovarish, uh, which means comrade or friend in, um, in Ukrainian and in Russian. And what he actually says is domovich, which, again, has that suffix V-I-C-H, but dom means house in, in Russian and Ukrainian. So what he's actually saying is of the house or kind of like the smaller house, which is roughly translates to homie. So he's calling Prop Joe his homie in Slavic slang. And the other one that I really like, for someone who has the ear for Slavic languages, it's in the pronunciation mostly. Tovarish has an accent on the second syllable, where Domovich has the accent mostly on the last syllable. Um, but it's understandable for anyone who doesn't speak Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, doesn't have family from over there, perhaps. Um, and so my other favorite is when Marlo comes to visit him in prison and they're talking about he's been putting money on Sergei's guest list. Sergei doesn't need the money. He doesn't need him. And then he leans forward and says, Vuiponi Miser, gangbanger, which gangbanger translates to gangbanger. Um, but Vuiponi Miser is slang that says, are you an understander, which is kind of the Russian-Ukrainian version of you feel me, uh, because Vuiponi Mayet is a formal, you understand, do you understand, um, and that's more formal Ukrainian and Russian, but Vuiponi Miser, are you an understander, and how he leans forward and says it, and how Marlo reacts, yeah, yeah, I feel that, it's just one of those things that, if you know Slavic language, it kind of tickles your funny bone, so uh, definite 
Yeah. Well, and this is, this is what's really interesting is that I, I probably not a lot of people know a lot of Slavic language nuances. So one of the things that we really like about The Wire is that sort of attention to detail and like the research that goes into being it, very exactly. authentic. It, it makes for exceptional writing and, and exceptional authenticity to the point that unbeknownst to me, the actor playing Sergei was just from Virginia and not from Ukraine. And I just assumed because everybody in the show is, is pretty much an authentic character um, with the exception of some of the top build cast that he must have been, you know, an authentic Eastern, if anything, just an authentic Eastern European, you know, Slavic uh, individual, but not the case. Right. Well, and there were so many of the cast that were local to the area and that, again, adds a lot of authenticity. But then, I mean, I personally was surprised the first time I heard a, a sort of real-life interview with Idris Elba, his British accent, because he was so believable as a local of the yeah, Baltimore Him especially, it's, it's one of the most infuriating things, like when you heard him originally get floated for Bond and a lot of the... Um, I'll be polite and say a lot of the less than enthusiastic people um, were thumbing their nose at it. It was just kind of like as he was too, you know, too hood or too ghetto. And I'm like, have you ever what? He's the most British person. Him and Dominic West, both of them are like they always either have like a scarf or an ascot on. I mean, they're the most British people ever. Um, and it's just <laughs> amazing that they're able to, you know, to play those roles and to get so I mean, to make people believe right that you're this actually like this in real life. Um, so I guess it has a double-edged sword to it, but the authenticity, I mean, it, it just, there's so many layers of it that it's incredible. Every time you watch the show, I feel like no matter how many times I've watched it in <laughs> hundreds that I still pick up on things. Absolutely. I was just rewatching, uh, the other day I started back at season one, episode one and was noticing more and more and more sort of subtle details that, um, become, they they just add so much to the meaning and and uh, brilliance of the show. I find so. You mm. said you've watched it hundreds of times. Um, when you go back and rewatch, do you yeah. go back right to the start? Do you rewatch? Yes, yeah, so as my brother and I would episodes? like to refer to it as we once we start back again on season one, it's kind of like starting. We're we're on progress. <laughs> once we're on progress, we don't stop until. We finish, and, and Sergeant Jaybird is eulogized, uh, still alive, Jimmy. And, um, you know, then as the show, the, the, you know, the, the anthem of the show is the cycle continues. So in keeping with the anthem of the show, we start over again. And it, it just it's like uh, the background of our lives, essentially. Completely understand that, because it's the same for me as well. Um, I'm always kind of going back and, and replaying episodes. I, I skip around a little bit. I like to watch season Great two season. a lot, because that's my favorite season. Um, oh, absolutely. But, sorry, did you we, say great season? We take a moment. Let's, yes, you know, let, thank let, you. Let's take a season moment two gets for a lot season of two, heat. because season two gets the most flack out there, and Zig's Duck is great at putting up the memes that are just hilarious in response to it, but... In all reality, you know, there was a specific moment where somebody said that it was unrealistic, and I and this is my fault because I meant to have it pulled up, but my response was something about so. And what you're saying is that it's unrealistic in America for working class 
people, regardless of their background, who through their organized labor unions typically vote Democratic in their desperation turn to a demagogue and you can't see the parallels of how that's relevant, especially as the see, as the show is aged. Um, so I think that's a big blind spot on, on behalf of people. But I'm I'm with you. I'm with the hardcore fandom. Season two is such a bedrock of the show. And per my previous analysis, you can't have one season without the other. So without season two, you know, what's going on on the waterfront, the corruption, the Greeks, I mean, that, that bleeds into the future seasons. Absolutely. I think a lot of people probably struggled with, you know, at the start of season two, they're wondering, hey, where did all the characters go that I was following? But I think that is one of the um, things that's great about The Wire is that it does challenge the viewer and it does kind of disrupt our normal experience with televised drama. I have to admit that I didn't watch all of The Sopranos, so I'm not sure really um, maybe The Sopranos sort of set a precedent there. Uh, I know that they're always kind of brought up together as, yeah. It's interesting that you're bringing it up because I think that something that happened in The Sopranos was season one, and I apologize if this is a spoiler, but if you did watch season one, obviously you know there was a mob war, civil war, between Tony and Uncle June. Now, what happened going forward in the show was anytime a season ended that did not culminate in the gangland slaying of a high-profile mobster, the fanfare, the fandom were typically upset, but what a lot of the fandom doesn't realize is that rub-outs of high-profile mobsters or even made guys, you know, guys who were straightened out, that, that's not a regular thing. That's, that's very bad for business. So I think that in the same way, when Wire fans didn't get that gratification they wanted in Season 2, and maybe even some people were disappointed because the mob war between the Barksdales and the Stanfields didn't end in one of the two of them getting got. Right. It doesn't doesn't really deliver the uh, sort of tidy ending um, that we would see on something like Law and Order or CSI and those more mainstream dramas, you know, where everything gets kind of wrapped up in 43 minutes. You literally just took the words out of my mouth. Resolve it all in 44. I said 44, but you win the prices right. 43. (laughs) Closest without going over, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and so I think, um, you know, I watched The Wire on DVD years kind of after it had first came out. And so I was able to binge watch it. And then in, in most recently, I, you know, can binge watch it on Crave. And I also own it on Apple TV. And I have it in a number of different ways. But I'm trying to think about what the experience would be like watching The Wire on HBO as it was broadcast and waiting a week between episodes, I think it would be challenging because it's so dense with sort of subtle details that how could the average viewer remember all of that? It Going from my experience with The Sopranos, it was excruciating. And it's the reason I didn't start watching The Wire in real time because I was so invested in The Sopranos and it was kind of like everyone 
let's get together, um, NSFW, let's get really stoned, everyone shut up, lights off, Sopranos on, if anyone makes a noise, they're getting smacked, you know, that kind of thing. And it was almost like a religious experience. Um, so I didn't get to experience it that way with The Wire, but it was better for me to binge watch it. And I really have to give my brother, my younger brother, a ton of credit for keeping me on the straight and narrow here because like a lot of people, three-ish episodes in, I was ready to throw in the towel the first time around. And he said, he said, grip it and rip it and you'll thank me later. And now those are my favorite episodes of the whole thing. Yeah, I completely relate to that experience because my sister, Bailey, my co-host of the podcast, she is the one who introduced me to The Wire. And I, yeah, I, I remember texting her and being like, what does re-up mean? Because I didn't know. And I always kind of think it's, with The Wire, it's useful to have a sort of shepherd take you through the show or introduce you to it and be on hand to like your brother kind of keep you going or answer questions when you're confused. Um, and I've been able to then do that for a number of people that I know and have introduced to the wire. So it's kind of like a, a pass it on type of show for me. Oh, absolutely. I, I try to convince everybody I know who hasn't seen it to watch it. Sometimes over aggressively but that's okay if that's what it takes oh same i'm i'm very aggressive in my uh soliciting of the wire to other people but i'm always have you ruined have you ruined parties oh yeah i've ruined parties i've ruined like you know the office talk around the coffee pot and uh yeah everyone who knows me is sick of hearing about the wire Good, then, you know, it's a job well done. That's why we love doing this podcast is because there are people out there like yourself, like Bailey, like my, like me, like Ziggy Stack and others who want to keep talking about this show and continually find new new things about it. But I, I'm always interested when people say, you know, their favorite TV show is Breaking Bad or their favorite TV show is Game of Thrones. I always ask them, well, have you watched The Wire? Because I think if you have watched The Wire, then how could you choose, you know, something right. like, you know, one of the more, I guess, um, populist type shows like Breaking Bad. And I, I won't get into it because everyone who listens to our podcast knows that I have a lot of beef with Breaking right. Bad. But that's kind of what As, as do find. I. Yeah. But we also have to step back and realize that what you said rings rings true, right? There's a lot of populism there because unfortunately great art is often misunderstood or overlooked in its own time. Even things like The Sopranos, like The Wire, which are universally considered the best things to ever happen to, you know, weekly entertainment. And and I think that the impact of the shows have already kind of etched in stone what you're talking about in terms of the trajectory and you can see it in the familial relationships of the cast and how they embrace their um the the way that melvin jackson jr for instance kind of embraces the bernard thing and even though he's very humble and doesn't take credit for the i can't wait to go to jail line it's still it's still his presence it's still his delivery and this is something again that 
I see as a, a common nexus with the Sopranos and the Italian-American experience in the tri-state area and coming through Ellis Island in that same way is that we found a lot of great actors and singers and entertainers in that same manner where it was just, they didn't have to go to formal acting school. It was, they just found a whole lot of talented, charismatic and capable people. And they can just light up a screen as we've seen with the wire, whether it was, you know, Trey Chaney, JD Williams and whomever else. I mean, these are people that are now household names. They're getting work all over the place. And it's, it's great to see. Completely. And one of the things I find really interesting is the way The Wire blends sort of fictionalized versions of real-life people. And uh, we see that with Jay Landsman, who is um, like the... Landsman playing Landsman. Exactly, like that. And Landsman playing Mellow. (laughs) Yeah, and like uh, Norris also being in the show, who was the police commissioner and... And uh, and they give him all the great lines bagging on the Baltimore uh, Police Department. And you you brought this subject up with us on Twitter about how, especially in the political storyline, there are lots of references to real life politicians, and and we were interested in that. Yes. I know a lot of the time it's uh, Martin O'Malley, the real world uh, former mayor of Baltimore and then governor, uh, right. is the inspiration for Carchetti, but you picked up on a lot of additional references and I'm wondering if you want to speak to that. Absolutely. One of my favorite uh, Easter egg hunts in The Wire is the profiling through some of the characters, the the D'Alessandro family, which was Nancy Pelosi's um, father, was... Tommy D'Alessandro Jr., but he was known as Tommy the Elder because her brother, Tommy the Third, was known as Young Tommy or Tommy the Younger. Um, and of course, she's Nancy D'Alessandro from Baltimore. Everyone probably knows her as Nancy Pelosi from San Francisco, but that's where she lives now, not necessarily where she grew up. Just like, you know, Tommy Carchetti, I knew your dad, First District Democratic Club. Um, I think we see uh, the Terry D'Agostino character first appear in season three. And Tommy's sitting there with uh, Pete Snopoli, who says, that's Mario D's kid. So we've got D'Agostino, D'Alessandro, Mario D, Tommy D. Um, And then in season four, he's late because he's uh, swapping stories with cold coffee, over cold coffee with young Tony. And then we hear Terry, and this is kind of funny because it's, Terry D'Agostino is supposed to be a younger version of Nancy starting out, you know, in, in politics as a as a strategist and consultant, kind of kind of throwing shade at her own brother, saying, young Tony, a one-term mayor. And then they talk about how he got a bad hand with the riots, which were in 68 after MLK was assassinated. There were riots in over 100 cities. And she says, uh, Terry, that is, says that... Uh, one politician's disaster is another is another's career and mentions Spiro Agnew, who at the time was the governor, and Carcetti responds with a puzzled look, Agnew? Richard Nixon ended up picking Agnew to be his running mate. Oh, all right. So this is so much context that I mean, I certainly didn't know. Bailey and I are Canadian, so we have much less knowledge of uh, the American political landscape. 
Um, but this is why it's so great to talk to other fans of the show is there's a, a lot of knowledge exchange. Um, the other the other great Easter egg about the D'Alessandro family is one of David Simon's own favorite stories is um, when it's in season five and Gus and Twig and Jeff Price are in the quote-unquote smoking lounge at the paper. Oh, yeah. And he's, <laughs> and he's talking about the, right, my desk, my desk. And so this is a, a, a apparently a true story. And after the fourth time of, excuse me, Mr. Mayor, my desk wants to know, Big Tommy, Tommy the Elder, holds up one finger in pause, puts his head down to the desk of the Baltimore's mayor, pretends to listen, looks up at the reporter and says, my desk is telling your desk to go fuck itself. <laughs> oh my God. And then, uh, and then Zorzi, who plays himself on the show, as you mentioned, many of the people who play himself on the show uh, and a writer on the show, Zorzi says, too true to check out. <laughs> the humor in The Wire is, uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. And a lot of people don't necessarily categorize The Wire as uh, a funny show. But there are some great oh uh, funny moments. And oh uh, how do you kind of, how do you view the humor that comes up every so often? I'm thinking of Rawls especially has some great moments. And uh, the, the one that you just mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, I think that um, it's necessary to show how humans provide levity in tense situations, especially the murder police. You know, they're dealing with, let's face it, some of the most morbid stuff that people can deal with. Um, and they have to make jokes. The, you know, Sergeant Landsman on the show, Sergeant Landsman, you know, Jaybird's great at the levity, right? The. The prostate on the floor. That hurts bad. That's a victim, all right, and all that stuff. Um, so it's like my, my brother's a public defender. It's it's very traumatic work as well. So they have to find, you know, levity where they can. So I kind of, you know, I'm able to understand, I think able to understand it a little bit more. Um, but also in the same way that there's a, there's a book called Wise Guys Say the Darndest Things, in the same way that, you know, on mob shows or mob movies, you've got some memorable levity, you know, in the face of some not so glamorous stuff going on. You've got great comedy from Snoop Pearson, who plays herself yes. as Snoop Pearson. <laughs> um, she is, I mean, just, it's, there's nothing else like hearing Snoop just go on some funny tangents. Like the, uh, the home, I guess it's a Home Depot or a Home Hardware uh, scene at the opening of um, what is it season four I guess uh, the best one of the and best it's, it's one great of the best because it, it does have some humor to it it's also um, it, it's I think challenging for a viewer as it should be um, with the sort of regional accent and I have heard some people say that they would watch The Wire with subtitles to kind of get into the this the slang or the the dialect of, of the game and the street right um i didn't watch with subtitles but like i said earlier i was having to text my sister and ask what does re-up mean so uh yeah it doesn't it doesn't right. spoon feed this is, anybody this is something that's you're no and and you're touching on something that's really important and i feel more fortunate than most because you know my 
my family grew up in New York, and then my brother and I grew up in South Florida, Miami, where it's incredibly diverse, and there was a lot of issues with policing, and not the area we lived in, you know, thankfully, but just we were aware of it. There was things going on, like music coming out at the time, like Luke Campbell, he had albums getting banned because he was being very vulgar about the police at the time, and you know, that led to us being um, exposed to things like reality raps, like KRS-One and NWA. So I think that it's important because it's very rare for people to be in very, very diverse settings um, in, you know, in this hemisphere at least. And for people who didn't grow up in a diverse city and certainly not a, a majority black city, it's important to understand the human experience of people who aren't like you and to try to, it's impossible to walk a mile in somebody's shoes because it's just, that's a physical impossibility, but you can at least try and understand people who don't go through life the way you do and who are constantly being hassled by police and thrown in the, in the back of the wagon. I mean, we've got We've got April 22nd, is it, with We Own the City coming out, and we just mentioned Snoop. I mean, Snoop wasn't best friends with Freddie Gray, but I remember when it when it all went down, she was talking about how she knew Freddie Gray. They would see each other in the clubs. They were yes. cool with each other. And, you know, then he was de- all of a sudden he was dead. And what was the crime? Being black right. in I'm Baltimore? actually, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to the premiere of that show, April 25th, I believe. Um, so I'm re- I'm reading the book right now, and it's, it's a fascinating experience to read the book, and it's like reading the sort of precursor to The Wire, but it all happened after the show, which is interesting to me because it's like life imitating art. Um, so I can't wait to watch that, and also to see many of our favorite uh, cast members of The Wire back uh, working. Um, on a show that captures Baltimore and not just Baltimore, but sort of the American experience. I'm so excited. I'm trying to ignore it until, until it happens, which is why. I probably <laughs> oh, that's that okay. Day. Don't worry. The only reason we know is because, uh, we're planning to host a, a little Twitter spaces, um, just after the premiere and have a discussion. We hope you can be there, Craig and everybody who's listening. hope you'll be there. Oh, thank um, you. And, uh, yeah, it's very interesting to kind of see the way that the authenticity of The Wire continues on into stories and uh, material that happens afterwards. And I think The Wire continues to be just extremely relevant in, in many, many ways. I think that you really hit the nail on the head when you described We Own This City, you're reading it, it's the prequel, but it's also the, it's also a sequel, you know, it's a postscript as well. And that's that's the real value of The Wire, why it lives on, why it will continue to live on, is that we see the drug war, the cycle continues, Carver says wars end, right? You can't call this a war, it's still going on, we know that. You know, in certain areas, marijuana is legal. It's it's still Schedule One at the federal level in the United States. Uh, several states, it's still completely illegal. You know, we still let these drug war games go on. You've got the perverse incentives for law enforcement to chase stats for money and for militarized police equipment. You know, Bunny's speech in season three is one of the most 
prolific speeches when he gives that to Carver. That that's the moment that you see Carver turn from the Herc trajectory to the natural Absolutely, police trajectory. Absolutely, yes. The, that's the speech of there's never been a paper bag for drugs, right? No, when he pulls Carver into his office after Carver helps uh, oh, that's right, that's right. Out of it's, the and it's zone. along the lines um, of like, who do you have on your side him, type of message, right? Right, and that, you know, you have your stats, you have your arrests, you have your seizures, but what does that amount to when it comes to protecting a neighborhood if no one's willing to talk to you? You know, I can I can hire anyone to wear a badge and, and jack up a corner and grab vials, right? He said, and he's talking about pretty much, you know, when you call something a war, you need an enemy. And when you're at war, everyone's your enemy, and pretty soon the neighborhood you're supposed to be protecting becomes occupied territory. Well, and on that point about the sort of cyclical nature, I know that that's something you were giving thought to about how the cycle continues. And so uh, I'm hoping you can expand a little bit what you were uh, giving thought to there. Absolutely. The whole show is an exercise in the cycle continues. In in season one, we just talked about, you know, the drug war, has it ended? Not at all. Here we are, almost 20 years. June 2nd is the the 20-year anniversary of the pilot, and the same problems are going on, even though we know Portugal decriminalized all drug use back in 2001 or two to deal with a heroin epidemic, and it absolutely worked. So, you know, we just, we know what the solutions are. We choose to ignore it. In season two, we saw the death of of the working man, of honest work, of manual labor. Um, in season three, we see the cycle continuing in politics. It's just the money comes in. What is it? We don't we don't have time to chase down their stories, is what Clay Davis says. We just cash the checks, yeah. count the I'll damn take any motherfucker's money just, if he's giving it away. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I'll take any mother, and it's just it's nihilism, plain and simple, and and it's just part of the political. Uh, it's just part of the politi- embedded political structure of how the game is played, you know, and and it, it's unfortunate because to even get something positive accomplished in the Carcetti character, you see somebody who's conflicted, who comes into it with the best of intentions, and we see how even people with the best of intentions still get captured by the process, captured by the game. They have to play the game to get from step A to B to C, etc., and then we see the education cycle. We see people who came through. We start, we start to see in the Naaman Bryce character, we see we see Weebay came through those same schools, right? And it didn't work. And here comes Naaman, and, and Bunny finds him through, <clears throat> through being uh, somewhat of a teacher now. But we also see Bunny as one of the only people who actually tries to break the cycle, whether it's with the free zones in season three or with it's the school kids in season four, uh, and that's and that's one of the one of the rarities that we see is uh, bu- people like Bunny, people like Cuddy, who are actively trying to break the cycle, and everyone else is just kind of going along with it. And then, of course, more relevant than ever now, season five, fake news. I mean, if this show needs retroactive oh, awards now, great, great point and great idea i love the thought of retroactive awards for a show that was very prescient and ahead of its time and in many ways and season five kind of gets a lot of flack a lot of flack um yeah and i think season five it fits 
um, with the the puzzle that is the wire and that is this American experience landscape. And I mean, with the fake news, it, mm-hmm. it was extremely sort of ahead of its time. And all of the um, sort of cuts or uh, financial cuts and, and cost savings in journalism has only gotten exponentially worse since that season aired. Absolutely. And you're seeing the desperation in season five on, excuse me, on multiple fronts. You're seeing, um, what does Norm say, played by the, the late, great Reggie Kathy he says, we manufactured an issue to get elected governor. They manufactured an issue to get paid. And then the third item he doesn't say is Templeton manufactures an issue Right. To get a well, and set. McNulty manufactures an issue to get resources and... Well, that's the they manufacture. When he says they manufactured, oh, okay. mission to get paid. He's Got referring it. to the police and de facto. Yeah, and I was sorry. I was being very vague. Right, there. <laughs> and so it's kind of this. Um, well, it, it's perfectly kind of captured by the opening scene of season five. You know, the bigger the lie, the more they believe, and it does kind of come down to exactly. fictionalizing something in order to get what you need to either uh, move upwards or create change or whatever the objective might be for any one of the players in the game. Absolutely. I mean, we see people like Lester and Jimmy have to resort to nefarious tactics, even though they're the best investigators in Baltimore, they're natural police and they're, and that's a very rare thing. And, you know, I think one of the greatest one of the greatest and artistic moments, aside from the just great eulogy that Sergeant Jaybird delivers in McNulty's Wake, is that when he says he's natural police, it cuts to bunk. And then he says, yes, he was. And I don't say that about many people, even when they're here on the fell. I don't give that one up so easily. Natural police. It cuts to Sidnor and it cuts to Carver. That's Ooh. in the entire room. That's of course before Ooh, Lester comes in the room, right? Catch. That's that's it in the entire. And it's not saying that everyone in the room's a bad cop. It's just saying the natural police, the people that we need more than more than people like Daniels talks about, more than bodies on the street, more than cars riding past to, to show the flag to say you're tough on crime. What you need to do is investigate crime because the cops aren't necessarily stopping crime. They're trying to solve crimes and that he talks about going back and retooling and teaching people to investigate crimes, not to chase stats and act like warriors like Caliccio. Very unlikable police. And then you see, right. And you see Bunny, you know, he also tries to educate young cops to not be, you know, pieces of dirt and, you know, to at least know which direction they're running and, You know, it's not all about the bodies. It's about knowing what's going on in the streets. And, you know, Bunny's another character who asks, you know, when do things ever get to changing? He asks when they're leaving in season four, when they have a two-minute hearing and they stick a fork in them over the pilot program for the education of the corner kids. And, you know, nobody cares. It's just there's an election. We don't want to ruffle feathers. You know, anything that interferes with the cycle continuing is seen as verboten and it's incredibly frustrating, um, especially as someone who's, you know, been a part of advocacy work, 
for whether it's drug legalization or, you know, anti-racism. Um, like I said, my brother's a public defender. So I, you know, I, I get a lot of, you know, anecdotes from him and his colleagues and, and the uphill battles they face in the criminal justice system, which we also see in the wire as well. You know, there's so much importance to the show for people to understand what life is really like if you don't necessarily have the privilege to escape this system of of the criminal justice system of a vicious cycle of being caught up in drugs and drug money and and even for everybody else the way Lester talks about it when he's telling Sidnor that you know when Sidnor says he'd rather do street work and he's and he starts talking about how it's a career case and we see how all of us are vested, all of us are complicit behind the tragedy, behind who gets paid, how the money goes everywhere. You know, if we follow drugs, we get, if we follow drugs, we get the, the drug dealers, right? But you follow the money and you don't know yes, who you're going to Absolutely. Into. And so um, your brother, also a, a huge fan of the show and working as a public defender, I'm wondering, and I'm not asking you to speak on his behalf, but the experience of being kind of in the the game or at least one of the systems that's uh, portrayed what it must feel like to watch it like i i i wouldn't know myself because that's i'm not in any sort of line of work that's portrayed but um yeah and i guess like what do you feel you also what do you feel when you watch the show and what do you feel when it's over because is it bleak or is it um, kind of comforting to see the reality captured? I'm not sure. It's it's bittersweet. I think it's all the above, right? Because you're so frustrated that after all of this drama on all the diff- several different you know several fronts, that everything is the same. But the faces change, right? Michael yeah. becomes the new Omar. Sidnor becomes the new Lester slash McNulty. Greg's becomes the new homicide version of Lester slash McNulty. I guess so. Sidnor's the the major crimes version, and by extension, you hear Sidnor tell Phelan. Phelan's still yeah. Phelan, for better or worse. But you hear Sidnor tell Phelan that if the major could find his ass with a hand with his hand, then he would know we have more than enough to be up on a pen register, but the fuck if he isn't trying to shut things down. So, of course, you could just take a wild guess to, that, that yeah. Marimo has been made major, um, <laughs> but and that Carver is the lieutenant of the major crimes unit, you know. So you see the character progression in that sense where you see the cycle continue there. You see Carchetti try to make nice with Bunny towards the end when Naaman wins the debate. Um, trophy and it just keeps going round and round Daniels becomes a a public defender Perlman becomes a judge and it's just one of my favorite lines from the show and this is true in almost any realm and it's almost kind of like a a great example of the when keeping it real McNulty's a perpetual example of when keeping it real goes wrong it's why I relate to him so well uh, but he tells Perlman after they come out of uh, Levy's office when they're looking for Savino after Greg's get shot, he says, everybody wants to stay friends, everyone wants to get paid, right. and everyone wants a future. And that's something that's very, very, very important and dangerous because complacency leads to leads to 
apathy in the face of systemic problems that are shown in the wire the the drug war the culture created by keeping these drugs illegal um you hear the actor who plays the late Reverend Reed tell Bunny, you know, taking making the game street legal takes the heart out of it, aka the need for violence. Right. Well, and it completely disrupts the uh, systems that have been in place for so long. I mean, I I feel for Bunny because he was up against a a, a system that really wasn't open to any kind of innovative thinking or any sort of revolutionary problem solving and although the um the consultants or the people who from public health who had evaluated the free zone and said it's great for harm reduction it wasn't great for the people who were in power and wanted to stay in power absolutely it was seen as a tremendous threat it was seen as dangerous and i think you point out something that is incredibly relevant and essential to understanding at least the politics in america if not many other places where the political class and the money class and the law enforcement class have a completely divorced view of reality from the people who are on the ground all the letters that were flowing in from Bunny's community, happy that the dealing was off the corners, etc., etc., life was going on. So there's this dichotomy going on where one small class of people who control a whole lot of things in the city want a certain system to keep cycling through the way it usually does because that's more comfortable for them and their, you know, for... You know, basically, their their griftopia of a livelihood. It's a great term. Um, but there's, <laughs> oh, thanks. It's not. I can't take full credit for it. It's not mine, but it's a great term nonetheless. And then you see the suffering and the tragedy. And I hate to say this, but the Dickensian yeah, aspect. Certainly. You know, going well, on. and I think we see as the free zone comes into play, the complicity of the media in perpetuating these uh, legacy systems to the detriment of the general public because even though there are consultants saying that Amsterdam is good for harm reduction and you know folks are off the corners in other neighborhoods and so forth the reporter is there to get a picture of you know somebody who's substance using or substance buying and have that be very sensationalized. They're not there to report on the harm reduction aspect. They're there to report on the uh, scandal of switching up what has already been kind of put in place by systems of power. Absolutely. And you, you see the cowardice of politicians, even though Royce felt that in his gut, that double-digit reduction in crime, he might have been... Who knows? He might have been untouchable delivering a double-digit reduction in felonies citywide. I mean, but all of his so-called expert advisors got in his head, and he sat on it instead of getting... The best thing you can do is get out in front of a story, especially if it's a bomb. You know, you can't defuse a bomb that's already gone off, right? So 
you get out in front of the story, give the media no way to nowhere to go. Especially if you're doing some good, you turn the media into yeah. into, have into them a partner, advocate make them for the outcome. It, honestly, exactly. And I think that you know, it's funny that we keep talking about the cycle continues. Now the show's relevant. You see now uh, relative to what my current company is covering, um, Psych Corp and Psychedelic Spotlight, we're citing a lot of studies coming out of John Hopkins for psychedelics, uh, medicinal psychedelics, and it just makes me think of Reverend Reed telling Bunny, uh, the college boys love that mess, you're the police that legalized it. So it, you know, I always get a good chuckle because there always seems to be, there's always something from the wire yeah, that's relevant. always something from the wire that's relevant. Uh, there's so much to draw on in that show and um that's of course why we love going back and watching it again and again i now that i'm reading we own the city i'm kind of like a bit gobsmacked that when the wire was on the air before the events that take place in we own the city i would have thought that the show was a bit of a cautionary tale to kind of hold a mirror up to the institutional failings but then reading we own the city it's like oh Nothing changed. Did none of you watch The Wire? Exactly. And that's the most frustrating part for so many people in the show, whether it's McNulty and how his man, his anger manifests itself, uh, or Bunny. Um, you know, obviously, they take their frustrations into different outlets, but you can see across the spectrum how it frustrates everybody involved, whether it's great investigators who feel like they keep running into walls or a police commander who has the authority trying to change something but the brass doesn't want it to happen, a politician who recognizes that there's actually something good going on and for a change it could better the city but for political capital reasons makes the other decision. And... You know, you see the the tragedy of the children who are sucked into a life on the corner, um, and you you see the pressure to grow up hard. You know, Bunk talks about it with Omar in that one scene where they told him to go back home from the parties, you know, go home, schoolboy. He was on the straight, but like any young man, he wanted to be hard. And there's a lot of pressure when you grow up in those scenarios to to be hard, to, you know, to stand up for yourself, to, you know, kind of be scrappy and be willing to, you know, stand tall for your friends, no matter what the consequences, etc. And like we see in The Sopranos, like we see in mob movies, like we see in The Wire, it's not glamorous or romantic. Oftentimes what we what we are shown or what we see or perceive as romantic or glamorous is really how those characters are viewing those particular moments, right? Whether it's someone in the club buying drinks, acting like the king of everything, right? Um, to, you know, something out of the Sopranos at, at, at one of their social clubs. It's the same, it's the same human nature. And we see this cycle continue over and over and over again. And like I said, everyone knows what the problems are. It's just that the population, the citizenry is always way ahead of the political class because 
as we've discussed, the political class has almost no vested interest in change. Right. Yes, it, they are vested in um, carrying on with the system that is already benefiting them. There's an interesting anecdote that came out of Baltimore after the DOJ investigation, the first DOJ investigation, and there were some basically ride-alongs, and that there would be two police in the front seat and someone from the DOJ in the back seat, and the rollers were so pre-programmed that even with the DOJ watchdog, they would see... They would see a black dude on the corner and talk about going to jack him up. Do we have a charge? No, we'll just make something up. And it's like sitting right here, you know, just completely oblivious. Right. And it's, uh, yeah, it's a little maybe disheartening, but I think also it's um, valuable to see that sort of um, unsugar-coated reflection of reality. Oh, absolutely. Uh, firmly believing that sunlight's the best disinfectant. It's it's disheartening to hear. It's it's I think even more disheartening to know that things are so slow to get fixed. Um, especially in this country, there's a lot of if you question policing in its current state, it's it's kind of quickly turned into something else that it, it is not really what you're talking about at all and there's not a lot of room for nuance and it gets shut down very quickly so you know but we what we've seen from the wire is that and we see this in season three with mcnulty showing up on a wednesday when lester and prez are there in their uh outfits whatever they're wearing that you know mcnulty they tell mcnulty he's a known face around uh, stringer's store when they're putting up the camera and McNulty's going through how many sworn officers there are, how many investigators that bring in some real good case, felony cases, and he's talking about you know that real small sliver. And a lot of law enforcement are unfortunately taught, as, as Bunny mentions in season three, to act like warriors and to beat people up and to you know get stats and uh, grab vials, and they're not getting any information. They're not working their way up the criminal, you know, the criminal chain hierarchy. They're just harassing low-level people who are, through no fault of their own, really, just proximity, sucked into that life. And I think that until we really step back and say, do we need police to go on mental health calls? Do we need police to chase truants, etc. You know, we need invest criminal investigators. I don't think anyone's going to deny that, but just the way the system is set up, it's set up so that even people with good intentions end up becoming part of the problem. And I think we see that in all parts of all walks of life in the wire, but especially with within the police department that people who are trying to do, even people who are trying to do well, still end up becoming part of the problem instead of yeah, the solution. Yeah, I think, um, you know, the, uh, I guess it's the first raid of season one. The directive is to, you know, rip and run dope on the table. 
And it ties together a few of these institutions where the police want dope on the table. So the media can be there to photograph it and show that there was dope on the table, meaning there was arrest. And if the media broadcast that there was a big raid and it was successful, then the mayor looks good. And that like helps uh, kind of fuel the political, um, like propel the politicians who are in place. And I think uh, a lot of it does become very interconnected. And I mean, like you said, all these institutions are very wrapped up in in one another and the way that they're operating in sort of the spheres of power. No, it's such a great point. And it made me think of on the other side of the coin in season two, when they hit the brothel, it's it's Officer Walker's first appearance. He says, we're supposed to hit the door and get in quick. And he's got that big ram, iron ram in his hands. And Bunk says, calm down. They're not going to flush a half a dozen whores down <laughs> yeah, the Yeah, kind of like deflating the balloon and of how performative some of it is. Exactly. And then also, as opposed to the dope on the table to show off, when they tell Burrell about they sting a brothel, he says, if you got anything that looks like a list of clients, flush it. Probably half the Baltimore yeah. manual and is so, in there. so, I mean, there's uh, unspoken rules, and then there's uh, the sort of public or verbalized rules that are often at odds. And we see that in sort of all seasons and all the systems of the wire. Absolutely. And you just kind of tied back to one of my favorite characters, Clay, and one of my favorite Clayisms when he meets Daniels for the first time. He's all friendly about, ain't no crime here, and very quickly turns to, Irv, will you explain to this motherfucker exactly what the uh-huh. fuck it is he's doing? Yeah, you do a great Clay Davis, by the way. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the, oh, again, you. to go back to the sort of humor element, one of the funniest scenes is when Clay Davis uh, gets served papers and the, you know, whoever receives it says, uh, what what unit are you with? And they say, major crimes. And you know, major crimes, she... And I think it might be like the longest she in the whole show. Which uh, I find very funny and, again, sort of draws attention to the anxiety of some of the players at the top of the power sphere when anything threatens their status. Yeah, and you just you just pulled my string on another bit of humor. It, it's Sidnor who delivers it with a smile and the Sphinx Club? You were in the Sphinx oh, Club? My right. uncle used to tend, you know, just really being friendly. And hamming it up. And then when he has his grand jury thing, one of the great uh, moments in the show with uh, the actor who plays Gary D. Pasquale, who's one of the inspirations for, I believe it was Homicide Life on the Street. Um, They're sitting outside the grand jury room and the the self-important white man from the major financial institution (laughs) wants to go sooner. And, And... and Gary D. Pasquale says, you know, if you're important enough, sure. And he says, you know, and he says that he's the VP of a major financial institution. And then just the way Sidnor reacts with his face and looks at Gary. And then Gary says, who the <laughs> fuck isn't? Yes. It's like really great moment there. Um, so many, like there's just too many scenes to choose from, right? Like I could probably go into detail about every scene of every episode and and speak to how it's brilliant in so many different ways. Um, 
I think, well, we'll, we'll wrap up pretty soon because I've kept you here for a while, but I want you to, if you can, pick one scene, one favorite scene. Wow. What a challenge. Okay. Okay. I think just off the top of my head, maybe because we're on this kick, the scene when Clay is in Royce's office talking about when he's screaming at Royce about, uh, you want to run a campaign with my money pillowed under your ass? You need your people to back the fuck up, Clarence. That whole scene. And and Royce is like, nobody knew about that. You know, and all that. Uh, it's, it's one I'm of my favorites. I'm glad to hear you pick that one the because show. there are a few sort of iconic scenes that crop up a lot when uh, we ask this question of people. And, you know, like the chess scene or the balcony scene and, and a few others. But... I'm uh, I'm glad to hear I'm glad to hear that you have a, a sort of different choice and, and super interesting to have um, someone zeroed in on the the more political uh, focused parts of the show. Yeah, I, I think that it goes without saying that the obviously the Sergey stuff I have an affinity for just because my man Sergey. Um, yes, the political stuff, and of course, the season five Omar on the warpath scenes with Money Little Late Today, uh, when he ambushes that corner, then when he ambushes Michael's corner, uh, you make sure you tell the boss man you know who it is, drop Savino. Um, those are some of my favorite moments as well. Definitely. Um, okay, hardest character to say goodbye to when we lose them in the show? Bodie. Yeah, Bodhi was hard to say goodbye to. Not not even a question. Not not even a question. Because they start to plant it and it's it's cringe for me when when Stringer goes to Brother Muzon's hotel. I mean hotel. His hospital room. Yep. And then when Stringer has his meeting with Marlo trying to literally school him like a professor, like you a student of history, like oh, Marlo yeah. gives a shit. Um it's it's cringe. You know that his moment is coming because he's lost his restraint to that world and he's trying to stay in the ivory tower. Yes, absolutely. And we, we yeah. We, so that's why, yeah, that's why for me, Bodhi is just, it, it's instant Bodhi is the one. That's It's yeah, hard Bodhi. to see Bodhi get kind of beat down by his game that he's in, you know, and sort of sidelined and losing the support of the Barksdale organization when Bark steals put away and and Stringer gets got and everything and and what I really like about the wire is and you touched on this earlier the way that nobody is either fully good fully bad like there's a lot of empathy built into all the characters so that even though maybe we kind of don't like Bodie that much in season one and what he does to Wallace by the time season four comes around we feel for him and we're on Bodie's side. Yeah, I think a great thing about Bodhi's character arc is how much he matures from his early days and to where he ends up. But we see one of the problems with keeping drugs illegal with a character like Bodhi is, as you mentioned, the Barksdale crew dries up, he's left, he's operating as an independent, he's obviously a top performer even without a mob backing him so much that Marlowe wants his corner. And in Bodhi's world, when all of his backup runs out, when his ability to stand up for himself goes away, he has 
no recourse. There's no courtroom for him to adjudicate a dispute. It's basically get or get got or become a snitch for the government. Um, there, you know, there aren't many options for Bodhi. And we see the frustration that we alluded to previously really get to Bodhi when little Kevin um, gets taken down the alley and put in the vacant and they pull him out and he ends up kicking the cop car window. And that's when Bodhi ends up losing his restraint. And unfortunately in Bodhi's world, oftentimes when you lose your restraint, there aren't too many happy endings. Well, and there aren't too many happy endings in the wire period. Exactly. And this is another thing that I constantly battle with people about, whether it's The Wire, whether it's The Sopranos or, a, you know, a Scorsese mob movie, let's say. They always talk about things being glamorous or romantic. And it's, well, did you watch the entire thing? Because it's it's really not, um, especially The Wire. It's It's gruesome. It's tragic. It's beyond frustrating and unfortunate. Uh, especially when it gets to the to the corner kids in season four, um, you know there's some heartbreaking stuff, and it's very real. It goes on in in many places in this country, and I think the wire was such a great conduit into into one of those worlds to give people, you know, a sense of reality and a sense of. This is something that happens on an everyday basis. Maybe not near you, but it's still happening. Well, and as is said in the very first scene, this is America. And, you know, that's setting us up for the whole show. And this is America, and it's a portrait. I think in many ways a loving portrait, but a very realistic portrait of what is happening not just in Baltimore, but in in many places across the country. Absolutely, and I think that it's it's such a great dichotomy that the show strikes because you can really, you can see, you can feel the love for Baltimore that, you know, David Simon and, and Burns and Pelicanos bring to that show, and it's because... They love Baltimore so much that they want to criticize it constructively, kind of function as the ombudsman, they, you know, of where they see the problems and how to how to right the ship in their own backyard. And I think that a lot of people feel that frustration because, as we've talked about, hit on so many you know themes in the wire. There's just so many barriers to progress, but it really is, like you said, it's. It's an American story, um, you know, and that's why we have to tell this tale. We, we got to. This is America. I love that you said it's like the ombudsman of, uh, of the American experience. I think that's just a, a perfect way to, to put it in words. Um, Craig, I have so enjoyed this conversation. I'm so glad you could join us on the podcast. Um, We'll wrap up, but you know you have a you have a standing invitation. We'd love to have you back. Just uh, before we go, remind everyone uh, where they can follow follow you on social media or a website or however you'd like people to be able to to find you and uh, be aware of your content. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, I'm Craig Schlesinger I'm on Twitter at Psychedelic Craig. That's only one C. So Psychedelic spelled out and then R A I G. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Craig Schlesinger. That's S C H L E S I N G E R. And I am the Chief Financial Officer of Psych Corp. PsychedelicSpotlight.com is our main platform. Hope you'll check it out. We've got lots of stories there about all things psychedelics from the business aspect to the legal framework to culture and lifestyle. And um, we're really excited about the progress that medicinal psychedelics are making. We feel like there's a lot of success, a lot of success stories that are going to come out of this sector that, you know, didn't necessarily come out of the legal cannabis space or hasn't yet. We feel like medical cannabis was largely a, a Trojan horse just for legal weed and hooray we're smoking, which I'm all for, but we want to make sure that we get remedies for a lot of the ailments that, that people are facing. We want to make sure that we report on it accurately. We want to see communities get, you know, have affordability and, and patient access that haven't necessarily had that in the past. So it's a lot more than just psychedelic stocks and, you know, companies developing proprietary, you know, molecules and then being acquired by big pharma. There's a lot more than just that to the psychedelic space and the psychedelic community. So we're really, we're really positive on what medicinal psychedelics can do for tons of ailments from mental health to chronic pain. Um, they're helping veterans, they're helping women with postpartum depression, and it, it's just a really exciting time for medical research. And hopefully with all of the good research going on, this can have a, a positive effect on people's attitudes about drugs and drug policy. We're even seeing some traction in the United States Congress about finally decriminalizing marijuana at the federal level. So, you know, onward and upward, it's the progress is slow, but it's still forward progress. And again, thank you for having me. It's It's been an incredible experience, and I look forward to uh, returning someday. Well, it's your work sounds fascinating. We would love to have you back because we had a really broad conversation today, which was wonderful. But I'd uh, love to have you back uh, to have a conversation really focused on the portrayal of the war on drugs within The Wire. Uh, it sounds like you have a lot of expertise there that you could share with us and with our listeners. And uh, us being in Canada, where cannabis is already decriminalized uh, federally, um, would love to sort of discuss that a little bit further. So um, we will also tag uh, all of Craig's accounts that he just mentioned in our show notes and on our social media, so you can find the accounts there. And uh, Craig, thank you so much. We will see everybody next time way down in the hole. Thanks again. <laughs>